episode 84 of DevTalk, I speak to Robin Manuel Thiel about choosing the right cloud services. Welcome to episode 84 of DevTalk. My name is Kerry Lothrop, and today's guest is a special guest because it was, he was my first guest when this podcast started 83 episodes ago. Robin Manuel Thiel, he's a cloud native architect at Microsoft, and I'm really happy to have him back on the show. Hello, Robin Manuel. Hi, Kerry. Nice to be back. <laughs> I I actually had to look, and you're the first guest who was a guest when the podcast was still in German and is now a guest again in in English. So the first nine episodes were German, and then I figured out I was running out of guests and also didn't get much feedback from listeners. So I I thought I'd I'd widen up the scope by by switching to English. So thank you for agreeing to this. Too bad for your non-German speaking listeners because now they can't rehear the first episode and that's right. See what yeah. we talked about. Or they could take it as a challenge right. <laughs> to learn German. So you're a cloud native architect at Microsoft. And what what does cloud native architect mean or cloud native to you? Yeah, that's the big question. That's that that's the question where if you ask 10 different people you might get 11 different answers. Um I think like the term cloud native um, comes from the CNCF, that's the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. That's basically a foundation that consists of a bunch of big tech companies out there. So there's Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, I IBM, a lot of really big players, but also some small players yeah. who try to define what it means to build an application, a super modern ap application that is born in the cloud, that is um, written in a way that it's meant to be hosted in a cloud and that utilizes cloud-only technology natively okay. and on the same hand is heavily dependent on vendor-neutral open source technologies. And that's one of the big benefits from having a foundation that consists of multiple different competing companies that whatever they put into that foundation needs to run on all of their environments, right? So for example, VMware is, is is making sure that everything is not only running in the cloud, but also on their on-prem infrastructure, whereas obviously Google, Microsoft, and AWS are trying to, ma to make sure that all these technologies work nicely within their platforms. Okay. So as a user of cloud-native technologies, I'm in, the, I'm in the nice spot that I can basically run these applications, technologies, wherever I want. And on the same hand, most most of these technologies are open source. Most of these technologies somehow work with containers, with with automation, with um, yeah everything that you can find in the cloud world or that is born there. So it's not focused on typical migration lift and shift scenarios, but more more applications that have been written for the cloud in the first place. And a cloud native architect is architecting cloud infrastructures where these applications can find a home. Uh -huh. And obviously, as I work for Microsoft, I do that in the Microsoft Azure Cloud. So I help customers to be successful with these cloud-native technologies in our cloud platform. So okay. customers who try to run on run containers, run on, run on Kubernetes, want to use microservices, all these things that evolved over the last years, we as Microsoft try to ensure that uh, the Azure Cloud is the best platform for that. 
Mm-hmm. And if the customers also think that my, that Azure might be a good platform for it, then I can help them with creating the right architecture, choosing the right sizing, choosing the right services, stuff like that for their service. Okay. And you mentioned as opposed to lift and shift. So that means I have something that runs on-prem and I just pack it up in VMs and put it in the cloud. And then I'm, I'm, I'm not cloud native, am I? I'm, I'm just taking what I had on-premises and I'm running that in the cloud. But cloud native means I I develop something from scratch or I migrate what I have to make the best use of the cloud services. Correct. By leveraging what maybe only the cloud can bring you, like stuff like serverless, for, for example, because mm-hmm. running on-prem can really be serverless. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. Like the, I think the definition is not too too strict here. There might be edge cases of a lift and shift scenario where you started um, building an application, and you and if you can just then just put it in a container and run it maybe in a in a serverless container instance somewhere in the cloud. It technically, it might also be a cloud native technology. I don't think okay. that there is a super hard line here where you say this is cloud native and this is not cloud native. Mm-hmm. But as long as the main purpose of running this application is like, like or the main environment is the cloud and it's meant to be executed and run in the cloud and it uses technologies that we usually only find in in cloud platforms from hyperscalers then i think it's probably cloud native and there are a bunch of technologies and open source projects out there that fit in that world yeah and the cloud and the cncf the cloud native computing foundation tries to govern them, them a little bit and um, gives a maturity index to help you as a as a user as an architect as a developer to choose the the right services for your application to ensure that freedom that platform independence and the maturity of of the open source project and that's what i mostly do with my customers is i help them find the right place for their application and i help them find the right adjacent technologies like which database platform which messaging broker which caching system should i use or do i need for my application okay and you you mentioned mainly open source when i think back of how how azure started it seemed like um these were services that were developed specifically for for azure to make it stand out as or to to not have the competition is is are we moving away from that like the last episode was on redis episode 83 uh, which which can run on any cloud system. Do, do you see that happening? That we're moving away from like specific things like table storage, Azure table storage, for example, and going more towards open source. Um, I think so. Yes, so definitely. Um, okay. Like storage is a nice example because technically S3, the main storage system from AWS. Mm-hmm. Um, has become a more or less industry standard for how we communicate with storage. And I don't technically mean S3 as the service from, from AWS, yeah. but S3 as the API specifications. So there are other other um, cloud storage providers out there that adopted the S3 API specification. Mm-hmm. So you can still use the S3 SDK from your applications to communicate with any service system out there but it began to be a de facto standard on how we deal with with storage. Okay. And on the other hand, um, like Redis is a great example because it is um, a super popular um, database slash caching system out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and now every cloud provider tries to build the best version of Redis in their cloud. So you're 
Um, the cool thing is that you will find something that is based on Redis in every larger cloud provider. And uh, still, as a developer, you can use Redis on-prem uh, or on, on your own developer machine if you're just developing an application against this cache and if you want to co communicate with it. Yeah. And on the same hand, all these cloud providers try to give you the best Redis offering out there. So they say, hey, you know what? We have a managed service for that. So you don't need to ensure that that, that you never lose that data. You yeah. don't need to ensure that you run Redis in a cluster with many different replicas, where, where even if one replica goes down, your cache is still available. You don't need to en ensure that you make regular backups. Mm -hmm. You don't need to ensure that, that, that the Redis system scales accordingly to your needs and you only pay what you actually use. You know what? You can just subscribe to some sort of Redis service in my cloud, and then uh, you, you, we just um, give you a bill with what you actually consumed on, and then um, you, you don't need to deal with all the, these things. But still, customers expect us as a cloud vendor to have something like Redis or something that talks the Redis language. Yeah. Um, because it's so popular out there and because it's so flexible and because mm -hmm. what users nowadays want is that uh, cloud vendor independence. But that still means that each cloud vendor can now take up the challenge and create the best version of Redis in their cloud to attract developers. Okay, nice. Yeah, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about... Well, so I create my my content. For example, I'm I have a mobile app and I need a backend. Um, that I mean, that's pretty easy to to get into that situation as a mobile app developer because, uh, well, if you're not developing a game, the chances are that you need a backend for your app, or or that that's expected, or or it, it just makes sense for what you're doing. And for people who haven't done this, there are different technologies to to build your backend in, right? And the question is, where do I put this? Yeah, you know, if I a colleague of mine just made an overview of all the Azure services. And I mean, all the Azure services. Oh. And it's like uh, two full pages in really fine print. And where do you get started there? Where, where do I put Where do I put my my server side of my mobile app, for example? Yeah, that, that's more or less exactly the question that my customers deal with and that I try to help them with. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I, I would say... Um, I would ask you the question, is it containerized or not? Because that makes your life a lot easier. So um, maybe one step back from that huge printed two-sheet big um, diagram of all the Azure services, I mm. think we can concentrate on those that can actually host a backend. And that is namely, of course, a virtual machine, like a simple plain VM. Yeah. Then there is a bunch of platform services namely Azure App Service, Azure Functions, Azure Container Instances, stuff like that, that makes it a, is basically more or less a managed web server that uh, takes either your source code or your compiled code, like your executables or binaries, or a container and run it. And then you can configure a way you want to scale it and run it. Yeah, And, and of course, you have all these cost, cont uh, like modern container orchestrating solutions, like Stuff like Kubernetes that you might have heard of. Mm -hmm. Stuff like uh, Red Hat's OpenShift, which is basically a, a supersized version of Kubernetes. Um, stuff like Azure Spring um, apps, which is basically a Spring Cloud, a hosted Spring Cloud environment for for Spring Boot developers. Mm -hmm. 
and that's where it, where it starts to get quite complicated. But going to your backend um, for the mobile app, um, I would ask you, is it containerized or not? Because if it's containerized, if, if we put, let's say, a Docker container around it, that basically means that it brings all the dependency it needs in uh, with that Docker container, and we can technically host it wherever we want. And with wherever we want, I mean, you can, of course, just start it on your local developer machine yeah. or throw it into any any cloud service out there or throw it over the fence of any other cloud provider. Right. Yeah. Well, so, but if I'm, say I haven't even started with my backend, should mm -hmm. I make it in a way that it's containerized or not? Yeah. But I think you already answered that, right? That that, that makes life a lot easier. Yeah, I would definitely say yes. And if you take a look at, um, maybe maybe we can put a link in the show notes, but the uh, Cloud Native Computing Foundation that I work a lot with, they've put out a so-called uh, trail map. So they try to guide you through the process of creating a cloud native application mm -hmm. step by step, because it can be super overwhelming to deal with all, all these services, all these technologies and stuff like that. Yeah. And the first the first step on that trail map is containerization. So what they say is try to create an application, and when and when I say application, now I mean the the web app that probably has a REST API or um, whatever API that your um, front end communicates with. The moment you've put it in a container, you are you solve the works on my machine problem once and for all, right? You can ship it to another colleague of yours, and they can run it in the, in the exact same way because it brings all the dependencies that it needs mm -hmm. with it. You can uh, you can be sure that it runs in the exact in the exact same way. On, on any executing platform, be it a cloud provider, be it somewhere on an on-premises server, stuff like that. And it makes your life so much easier that, that you have that standardized executable. Think of it like an .exe file on, on Windows or, or any executable binary. You have everything yeah. you need together. Uh, it has DLLs, you know, and they're installed in the system Yeah, that's directory. true. Okay, so, yeah, so maybe, <laughs> maybe that's not that's not the best example. Then think yeah. of it like a like Doc, a zip file Doc, that includes Doc everything. six uh, self-contained executables. Stuff like that, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Something that brings everything it needs and only needs a place to live at. And that yeah. is your your operating system. Okay. And that cool. is the first yeah. thing that that they start with, and only after that they continue with stuff like automating um, the, your your processes in CI/CD pipelines, and then putting it in a in a runtime environment for containers, and then add logging and um, tracing and, and stuff like that. But the first thing that they do is, can you put a container around it because it will make your life a lot easier. Okay. So let's say I'm using, I've got this in a project right now, uh, ASP.NET MVC, and I, I uh, put that into a container, and that container then contains the web server, or how much does it mm -hmm. contain? Mm -hmm. In this case, it would contain the web server. It's, if it's ASP, then it's probably Kestrel that it brings yeah. as a web server. If it's, let's say, Node.js, they bring their, their own web server. Okay. Um, but yeah, a container basically can then expose some ports, and on that ports, I can reach your application. So they are definitely serving something. Okay, and let's say it uses a database. Mm -hmm. Where would that be? Um, best case scenario is that you don't put the database in the container, mm -hmm. but that that you say it my container has some dependency on. Some database. Let's use Redis because that was the topic of the last episode, right? Yeah. 
So you can now say my, my container needs as an environment variable, for example, a Redis connection string. Okay. So that your code in the ASP.NET world, you would probably use the stack exchange.redis, I think it is, for com communicating with with Redis service. And once you spin up that service in, in your code, it probably expects uh, some sort of connection string. Mm -hmm. And then you pa just pass it in as an environment variable. But what it can now do is if you run that application locally on your machine as a developer, you can just start another container, the Redis container, next yeah. to your container. The Redis container exposes some ports, and then the connection string will be localhost, colon, the Redis port, slash something with, you, with, with your username and password. Mm -hmm. And the moment you you put the exact same application into the cloud, you would probably not want to host your own Redis container because, again, hosting a data service is hard because you need to make sure that the, that the data is persistent and that it survives failures and crashes and that it is always available, stuff like that. You yeah. should definitely use a managed service from another cloud provider for that. So if we stick in the, stick to the Azure world, there is an there is a service that that is called Azure Cache for Redis, I think. Mm -hmm. And then you deploy your container at one place and then use the Azure Cache for Redis service, which also gives you a different connection string with a different URL, but it's still the exact same code that ran on your machine, just a different Redis. Cool. Okay. So, so I've got two containers, and I, what what else do you typically need there? So or what, say, what, what, what comes into the container and what doesn't? Yeah, um, so the container usually just brings um, the code itself, or if we stick in the .NET world, the compile code, so something .dll. Yeah. Um, and the version of the runtime. I think that is basically all it needs. So what you do inside the container is you start, in this case, Kestrel as a web server and serve your applications. Mm -hmm. And this thing then gets put into a container registry, which is basically a place to park your container so that others, other platforms or other developers can can pull a container from there. Think of something like an NPM or NuGet registry where you just yeah. park a specific build of your container with a specific version of your code. Mm -hmm. And then you take a look at the cloud world and say, okay, where do I want to host this container? How hard should my life be? Do I want to have something like a full-fledged orchestrator? Or is it totally fine to just throw it over the fence and use something like a container instance? And the main difference between these things is um, a container instance is, I would say, the easiest way to run a container in Azure because it just you just say, hey, Azure, this is my container, run it. And the only things, the only parameters you can choose is the amount of memory and the amount of CPU that this container should get. Mm -hmm and the data center that you want to use for it. And then Azure tries to find a place somewhere and you cannot control where in the data centers to pull your container from the registry and just start it. And then you end up with a URL where you can reach your container on and you get billed by the exact amount of seconds that your container ran. Okay. It is the easiest way. It is also the, I would say, least flexible way because there's not much more that you can control. You can control a bunch of environment variables. I think you can mount a little bit of storage into it if you if you really need, if you really need it. Mm -hmm. But there is no concept of of scaling it, of putting um, your custom domain in front of it, of auto generating SSL certificates that you might need, of using fancy things like blue green deployments or um, or stuff like that and it's also not the cheapest solution for you because um, if you just run it 24 7 
there are way cheaper options to run your containers. And if we already are talking about web apps, then there is an Azure App Service, um, which is basically a web server that is meant for running mono monolithic applications um, that are exposed publicly in, in the web. And I think yeah. for the listeners out, out here, that should be the first the first starting point where you look at if you just create a monolithic backend. So if your if your backend landscape is not a bunch of different microservices, so not like six, ten hundreds of containers that need to communicate with each other mm -hmm. and have a different and and uh, different scaling needs that are independent from each each other. But let's uh, let's just say we have one backend, one ASP.NET project, and we put it in a container, and that's all we need. Then I think the Azure App Service is a super great place to start because it does not only take your container, it also brings you a bunch of convenient features like automatic deployments that can be integrated in a CI/CD pipeline, things like um, custom domains that auto-generate SSL certificates for you, things like adding easy authentication um, with Azure Active Directory of, or even Facebook, Google, Twitter, stuff like that in front yeah, of it, nice. protecting it, securing it, all these things. Um, and you don't need to know how it works behind the curtain. You just use it like a, it's, it's a very developer-friendly platform. Yeah. And I think that is the first place I would start with because it also um, serves a bunch of scaling needs. So what you can basically uh, say is, hey, whenever the application that runs on that app service reaches a, a certain uh, threshold of CPU or memory usage, I want to ask the Azure platform to please um, scale out to not only one instance, but maybe four, three, two instances of my application and automatically load balance the, the traffic between my instances. And if my usage of CPU and memory, if it ever goes down, then maybe scale back in so that so, so that I can save some costs. Yeah. But then you will have to put some thought about what that means. If it uh, all of a sudden you're used to like writing your ASP.NET application to run on one IIS instance on-prem and now you're in the cloud and now you you're becoming more successful, more users or more features, and you need to scale out. And all of a sudden, you can't just uh, do things like, I'll just write something into this one file in the file system because the other instances might not have access to that. Very true. So so what what are the things you do to... I mean, that's just one example, right? That That something you used to be able to do without any problems, and now you have to think about it. Right, and it's already the best example because the moment you add storage, your life gets harder. Yeah. Because um, there might be, like, like usually um, if we talk about a backend for a mobile app, for example, then it's probably a stateless, restful application. And I don't care if a specific request hits instance A or instance B because mm -hmm. there's just a controller that executes some some code. Maybe it asks a, a database and all these instances can probably point to the same database. As long as the database scales accordingly and is still able to handle all this load. But the moment where you expect something to be available to that server um, and that something is storage, you make your life a, a lot harder because it's harder to control which server it hits. Of course, you can do stuff like sticky sessions, for example, where you, 
we say, hey, um, if the, if there's the same request coming from the same device or a different request coming from the same device again, please make sure that to route that request to the same instance yeah. of my of of my backend. But you that there is no guarantee because we do all this scaling to be able to lose one of these instances in case that something crashes or goes down or is too busy. So it's just the best effort. So if you ever um, need to place something somewhere in storage, you should you should not use the storage um, that is directly attached to the virtual machine or server that your um, that, that that your app is running on, but either yeah. put it into a database that you can access from all these um, these instances, or put it in a Redis cache, or put it in a cloud storage that you can mount on multiple machines. So there is there is cloud storage like um, Azure Storage, for example, offers blob storage and file storage that you can mount um, on multiple instances. Mm-hmm. And you can write from multiple instances into that file storage. And you can use the blob storage API also from multiple instances. So yeah. the moment you we talk about more than one instance, that's your way to go. Right. And I I was thinking about this with, with Redis. You know, why do I need a cache? I've written lots of caches, right? And... Um, but they, they they fail as soon as I mean the user ends up in a different node at each with each request. Then right. how is that going to work? Right. Right. It's distributed cache, and that is the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it starts with if you're in the web world, you have a you have a session, you have a cookie, and uh, I, I remember in ASP.NET web forms, you, has to, you used to have this view state thing. So basically, all your state of of the user that the user has gets sent back and forth with each request, and it was a bit of a nuisance. Uh, but it, it solved that problem that uh, the server, whenever a request came, they didn't need to know anything about what happened before. You could just take everything out of that out of that view state. But ideally, you just have one session ID, and the server knows all the information that's associated with that session. And this could be in a lot of places. Right. And you can basically train that by um, just killing your, your 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 servers from time to time and see if they can still deal yeah. with the same requests. So um, there is a nice saying in the cloud native world, and basically says um, treat your treat your servers as cattle, not cats. So <laughs> ah. you might afford to like don't don't fall in love with a single instance. That's yeah. basically what it tries to say. It's like those Boston Dynamic robots. They. <laughs> They, they just try to knock them over all the time and, and see how they behave. <laughs> and hope that yeah. they never start fighting back. <laughs> right, right, yeah. But I mean, yeah, how, how is it going to learn how to... Uh, yeah, when something goes wrong, it has to be able to do that. So they, they do have to test. And yeah, they have to... Yeah, I, right. I, I guess it's a good analogy. There's also a new motion that is coming up that's called uh, like chaos, chaos engineering, where you basically um, try to constantly um, yeah, penetrate your system and create failures um, in your environments to get used to the state that not everything works perfectly. There are even like, there there are there are extensions for Kubernetes, for example, and Kubernetes is like um, think of multiple virtual machines connected to each other um, being capable of interchanging con- containers, hosting containers wherever there is free space and then let them communicate with each other and scale yeah. the whole cluster of VMs dy- dynamically. Mm-hmm. Um, there are plugins for that 
that constantly try to kill your darlings and um, <laughs> shoot some of your containers in the head and try to bring things down and try to slow down network traffic somewhere. And they just simulate failure. And the idea is, um, like, for example, Net Netflix does that all the time. They are all the time um, provoking failure in their systems so that no one ever gets used to the state where everything works perfectly. Okay. And from day one, their developers and their architects have to design a system that can handle this chaos monkey that is sitting somewhere. Because it could happen mm -hmm. that one day this chaos monkey is targeting your system and is maybe killing one of your VMs, even if they work fine, or is you know, misconfiguring something. Right. And I think right. that's... the. Um, of course, that's the hardest way to learn it. But I think if you provoke it from day one and your developers know that it not just could happen, but it will happen, um, then you design a system differently and way more resilient. Right, yeah. Cool, yeah. So, but what did we miss? So we we, we talked about Kubernetes or, or, or running your code in containers. Then we talked about app service. We talked a little bit or we, we at least we mentioned things like serverless mm -hmm. backends also an option um, that is more interesting um so serverless is somewhere lives somewhere in between these worlds i would say it's it's easy if you just say i have a monolith then you should look at app services i have um many many microservices that that they need to talk to each other, then you should probably take a look at an orchestrator for all these microservices, let's say mm -hmm. Kubernetes. But of course, there's also serverless. And serverless, I think, would fit best in the world of event-driven workloads with short-lived processes, like something that doesn't need to be available 24-7, something that um, is event-based. So I like to use serverless to react on things, let's say, whenever something happen, happens in my system. For example, whenever a new user signs up, there might be a super small piece of code that should wake up at this very moment and don't know, look up the profile picture of that user at LinkedIn and download it and put it in my storage or, or in my database and then fall asleep again. Right. And I'm not sure if, if that ever happens. I'm not sure how often that's, uh, th that happens. And of course, I could put that code in my monolithic app. But maybe I have my 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 app core or my my backend core surrounded by a bunch of workers that can react on events, and I think that's the niche spot for serverless, because a I could just give it to a different development team or maybe also a more junior developer because it's a super super tiny scope. It's probably just a few hundred lines of code at max. Yeah. And they can, uh, you can also run it as a container or, or natively, so it doesn't really have to do oh. something with the container world. But it's more or less, um, you say the cloud provider, hey, whenever this happens, so it's more like an if this, then that scenario, whenever yeah. this happens, put the um, start this code, either as a container or as native code, I don't care, start this and inject the details of the event um, that triggered um, that code um, pass it over or inject it as an environment variable or whatever, but mm -hmm. let the code that, that that executes know why it started. And then you only pay for the amount of seconds and the amount of like, compute and memory that it consumed um, during uh, during that processing of the event. Yeah. And the cool thing is the cloud provider promises you 
to automatically care about the scaling for you. So they're going to find a, f a few space for your um, for your serverless code somewhere in their data center. And they say, if tomorrow a million users are signing up and you, and you need to trigger that process of downloading the profile image from, from LinkedIn um, a, a million times in parallel, then the cloud provider says, we can do that and you don't need to deal with, with the scaling and you only pay for... One million times, let's say one uh, one or two seconds of compute, and that compute has a price tag that you can then then pay for. But of course, yeah. you can also limit it They're to a cheap. certain amount. Yeah, yeah. But okay, yeah. So it's not meant for twenty four seven available. Mm -hmm. It's more or less meant for short living processes that are triggered by events that happen somewhere in in your system. Yeah, but I I can picture a mobile app where uh, like. A, serverless backend would suffice for for that application i mean that the smallest possible backend basically right if that application is not like constantly communicating with with a backend but just from yeah. time to time asking it that that then this event trigger could also be an http request right yeah uh, in the in worst in worst case scenario then uh maybe the user has to wait a bit because these serverless things, they scale down to zero and there might be a small warm-up and startup time. Mm -hmm. But we're not talking about like 20 minutes here. We're talking about seconds. Yeah. But um, yeah, so if I don't think that I would choose serverless for an application that is communicating all the time back with the backend and streaming data back and forth. Yeah. But if it's just a super simple, uh, just a bunch of requests, just give me the data that I want from a database, just let me know when something happens. Send me push notification when my best friend came up. Stuff like that that can yeah. definitely be be used with serverless technologies. Like one example is not exposing your an API key in your app code, and then you can just let it go through a, a Azure function and and make let the Azure function do the call and hide that API key. And maybe you can add a limit to that and say, well, right. if it if it's over a thousand a day, then don't serve it anymore, something like that, to prevent yeah. uh, abuse of that. Yeah. All right. Or you can cache it and say, yeah. Uh, yeah. don't always ask my database because these requests might be more expensive than just serving it from a cache. Right. Yeah. Or th there, there might actually be a cost involved when I am querying a third party API. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Per, per call. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we, we got these different flavors. And I think we talked about when to use what. So there is one more thing um, because I think we like we've touched Kubernetes, but everyone who ever heard about that probably also heard, "Ooh, but it's, it has a super steep learning curve, and it's yeah. and it's super hard to manage. And if you can avoid it, don't touch it." I've heard that personally. I'm a super super big fan of Kubernetes um, mm -hmm. because it's it's more like a cloud provider instead of a cloud provider. It's a whole different world. I would yeah. say it's worth learning it mm -hmm. because once you learn it, you get um, you, you get so much power and flexibility from that platform. But I can understand everyone who says, Phew, I'm just having maybe not a single monolith, but maybe just two or three services here. Do I really need to dive into that world? Because it is a whole different world. It's nothing that you learn overnight. It's worth learning it, but it's definitely nothing that you just use and without really knowing what you're doing there yeah and for that there is a quite new interesting service um at least in the azure world and i'm pretty sure that other cloud providers are working on something similar as well and that is called in the azure world that is called the azure container apps 
And that mm -hmm. is the newest service that we have for hosting web applications. And what it tries to do is to give you the power and flexibility of, of a full-fledged container orchestrator with uh, managing different scaling needs of different microservices, connecting them with each other in an internal network and only exposing a few specific or even only one service in front of it. Like all the, all the nice things that you get from an orchestrator like Kubernetes or OpenShift. Okay. But try to make it easy to use for developers and abstract all the, the complexity away um, and give you a nice and easy to use interface similar to what the app services do but for um, but for microservices and for like made for containers, so you can basically you can of course put a container in an app service, uh, but this service is built for containers only. And if you have more than one service, like if you do a, if you have a even small microservice architecture, then you should definitely also take a look at this mm -hmm. because it brings a bunch of cool features and scaling um, um, and scaling capabilities even down to zero. So you can more or less create a serverless container-based architecture there. Under the, underneath, uh, under the hood, it runs Kubernetes, but you, you don't ever see it. And it um, hides and abstracts all the complexity away. Okay. And I think if you are having a multi-container backend, then it's definitely also worth looking at. Yeah, that d does sound like what I'm looking for. Okay, I didn't know about this. Thanks. Cool. Yeah, um, so I think we covered quite a bit. Um, Maybe if there's more, we should should have another episode. Yeah, thank you so much for for showing me this this world, and um, I think that's going to help a lot of people to to better get the big picture of of what's possible here. Oh, for sure. I mean, you might have heard that I can talk about these things all day. <laughs> right, um, that's your job, right? That, very true, but it also became. I think a hobby is hard to say, but it became a passion. Yeah, I really, I really started to like all these infrastructure backend worlds. Like, uh, yeah, you know it, um, but maybe most of of the listeners don't know that we we share the same passion for for the whole front end world, and we both come from from the mobile world. And I was yeah. more or less dragged into these backend and infrastructure worlds through my th through my day job. Yeah. And I started to like and even love it from time to time. So um, it is an it is an interesting world, and uh, I gotta put a um, I I gotta put a link to um, a diagram into the chat that basically sums up what I what I just said. And it's uh, it's a it's a um, decision helper for okay, I have this or that application. Where should I put it on on Azure? Um, it might help because I can imagine that it have been has been a lot of stuff and a lot of content and maybe a lot of new technologies and words right so that makes cool. your, your all your lives probably a bit easier yeah that and yeah don't don't hesitate to if there are questions then feel free to contact me on linkedin or twitter if i can help i'm i'm happy to do so cool yeah that so that that diagram sounds better digestible than the two sheets <laughs> yeah. of all azure services <laughs> all uh, represented uh, equally <laughs> yeah great thanks a lot I will uh, put that into the show notes also. Sure, that was fun. Yeah, and as maybe I've, we haven't seen each other in person in a long time. We used to do Xamarin events together, we, quite a few, at least three, I can remember. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that, that in the good old days, uh, maybe we can come up with something in the future. 
it would be nice now that in-person conferences start to be a thing again and yeah, yeah. My, things are slowly coming back to life and uh, i mean otherwise even if we do hybrid or online only events it would be nice to organize something and uh yeah, either talk about these things or talk about all all the other fun things that you can do with containers like i just thinking about like, you can nowadays even develop inside a container connect your visual studio instance to containers <laughs> do fancy things with it yeah. so it's a world of full of fun and we can we can talk about it anytime cool yeah well i'm looking forward to seeing you again and uh, thank you for being my guest today thanks for having me it was nice being back this has been another episode of Dev Talk, and we'll see each other again in four weeks. Bye bye.